Welcome to NBC. If you're joining us online, we're particularly glad to have you. If you've got a Bible and get, get it warmed up, uh, open it to Luke 15 or a Bible app, as you do. Uh, let me put a bug in your ear, a shameless plug for our very own Ritz Theater Company. is uh, our very first show that we've kind of put out there uh, for here inside the Ritz. And two adorable Spivey girls are going to be in that show. Uh, it's coming up this weekend, starting Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. I think there's five shows. Um, so if you want to do it, you're part of the church. We have a discount code, NBC22. Put it in there. You get a discount on tickets. Age appropriate, probably third grade on up. Uh, nieces, nephews, anybody that you think would enjoy it, by all means, come do it. It's going to be a great time. Uh, so Freaky Friday lands on Thursday. All right. Here we go. Luke 15. Uh, one of the best known chapters in all the Bible. It is known as kind of the grace chapter. You get three stories of redemption there. It starts with the lost sheep. And we tell that story. It's God leaving the 99 there to go look for the one lost sheep. And when he finds it, he throws it over his shoulders and he's thrilled. He's happy. And that's a heartwarming story. The second story, lost coin. God is like a widow. He's pictured like a widow who's lost her last coin and digging through the sofa cushions. I got to find it, got to find it, got to find it. And and so she goes through the cushions and everything. Ah, there it is. But diligently searching and seeking. And God is pictured that way in Luke 15. And of course, the crescendo is the very well-known parable of the prodigal son. Luke 15. I mean, God is gracious. God is loving. God takes us back. Amazing. We're not talking about any of that this morning. We're going to be in Luke 16, the next chapter. And so if you've ever wondered what comes after the prodigal son, probably the strangest parable of them all, often misunderstood, seldom preached. In uh, 26 years of ministry, I've preached on it one time 20 years ago. Um, Not preached often, even by me. (laughs) But it's one you can't avoid. If you really want to do justice to the full witness of Scripture and whole counsel of Scripture, some people call it the parable of the shrewd manager. Others call it the unrighteous steward. Either way, where do you go with shrewd, which is a word we kind of use for wise with a dash of weasel or something. It's not a word we use very often. If somebody calls you shrewd, you're like, thanks. You know, it's kind of like, I, I think you mean I got, I, got, I got some skills at making things happen, but, but maybe don't do it that honestly. That's why it's traditionally been called the parable of the shrewd manager. But it's almost like God is going out of his way to say, all right, after that story about the prodigal son, him coming back, and the older brother who's going, hey, how come there was no party for me? I've been honoring you all the way through, and here's my knucklehead brother. He comes back, and he gets the big bash. What about me, dad? Right after that, you go from the partying son who wastes dad's money and his share of the inheritance to a parable about growing up. Meaning, don't be like the prodigal son. If you're away from God, come back to God. But day to day, there's something to be said for the older son or the other son who never left the house. That there's a time to grow up. You're supposed to grow up spiritually. 
You want the faith of a child, but you want the discipleship of an adult. That there's a maturity to be aimed for. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, if you go to the little house that he was raised in, in uh, Salzburg, you can see where he grew up, and there's a little plaque where they talk. His sister is describing her brother. She says, Wolfgang was small, thin, pale. And here's the line that got me. Apart from his music, he was almost a child. And thus he remained until the day he died. And this was the essential feature of his personality. He always needed a father's or mother's or some other guardian's care. So genius, writing symphonies, doing some great things, but in reality a man-child. A person who never grew up. He dies with no money, in debt, leaves whatever estate he has to his loving sister who wrote that about him. And if you're thinking, well, maybe that was just her opinion and they had a problem. Well, everybody that's very close to him says the same thing. He was a child. He, he, had no, he was not a responsible person. He wasted everything except his musical ability. And I wonder sometimes, okay, what will, what will be the epitaph uh, on good old Tim Spivey or you? Well, besides their career... They were basically a child. You know, know, except for their money, they were basically a child. And no matter what they did, they never really grew up. They were a permanent adolescent. Every time they spoke, from a spiritual standpoint, their voice would crack. They never really made it to maturity. They never became what they could have been. I mean, can you imagine the impact Mozart could have had Had he not wasted the rest of his life? Had he not lived his entire life on a piece of paper or at a piano? He could have had schools where he trained musicians. He could have had, I mean, inspired a whole generation of people. He could have saved all of that money and given it to good things. He could have, I mean, there's so much he could have done other than just write music, which we're all thankful he wrote the music. But at the same time, he also left us another lesson, which was grow up. There's a time to grow up. So Jesus says this, right after the prodigal son, right when we're aw shucksing, right when we got all the feels, all the warmth, we turn the page and he writes this, Jesus told this story to his disciples, Luke 16, 1, there was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. One day a report came to the manager, or that the manager was wasting his employer's money. So the employer called him and said, what's this I hear about you? Get your report in order because you're going to be fired. The manager thought to himself, now what? My boss has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches and I'm too proud to beg. Uh, I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. So he invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. He asked the first one, "Uh, how much do you owe him? The man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, we'll take the bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. When how much do you owe my employer? He asked the next man. I owe him a thousand bushels of wheat. Here, the manager said, take the bill and change it to 800 bushels. The rich man had to admire. Well, the dishonest rascal 
for being so shrewd. And it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of light. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. If you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you are trust, untrustworthy rather, about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you are not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? No one can serve two masters. Now, this has already come up in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6 and 7. No one can serve two masters. You will hate the one and love the other. You will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. All right. What in the world does this mean? Did he just command a shady guy? It sounded like he did. I mean, aren't we supposed to hold up these noble people, right? I mean, you, you take somebody who was a really super honest manager and you applaud them. You say, hey, go, go be like them. That, that, that's how it's done. Well, he's kind of done that already. We, we've, read, we've studied the parable of the talents. That's where he compares two kinds of money managers and he takes uh, the first one. We'll come back to the parable of talents in a second, but he, he commends those who multiply the resources that are entrusted to him. But this guy... This guy basically rips his boss off, and the boss's response is to kind of go, you know what, that's kind of, kind of brilliant, actually. And Jesus points to him and makes an example out of him. That seems weird to me. I'm going to suggest to you, some people have tried to play accounting games with this and make it seem like, well, you know, the reality was is he was ripping off the customers, so all he did was make it right. He just went back in and told them what, they were, what, what the actual debt was uh, and all that. Well, that... that there's nothing in the text that would suggest that that's what's happening here, nor is his character uh, full of integrity. In fact, Jesus calls him, literally in Greek, unrighteous throughout, the unrighteous steward. So, if he's really a good guy, Jesus wouldn't call him unrighteous all the way through. What in the world's happening? I'm going to suggest to you, if you remember your English classes growing up, that what we have here is a foil. A foil. Now, if you don't know what a foil is, they're like a complementary character in a film or a play or a book where they're put next to the star to help the star's star qualities come out. They're like a contrast. All right, so let me take you a walk through some foils. So you'll, these will ring a bell for you. Here's the original foil, really. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Same guy. He's a foil for himself. Uh, some of you are married to somebody like this, all right? Um, they're one person in the morning before coffee, one person after coffee, right? But there's the before, the BC, right? <laughs> and the AC afterwards, okay? Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. One personality at one point totally changes in the other, but they highlight each other. You see how bad Mr. Hyde is in part because of Dr. Jekyll. Same personality. Then in the kid realm, you get this. You get Simba and Scar, Lion King, right? You get the juxtaposition of these two. You get this little innocent uh, Simba. Uh, he's, a, he's an orphan at the hands of Scar in a certain way. I won't blow the, be a spoiler here, but uh, kind of blew it already. Sorry about that, but it's all right. There's plenty of Disney movies in the scene. Go, go see another one. But uh, in this one, basically, you know, uh, Mufasa is also a foil. 
So and you don't know who Mufasa is because I didn't name him yet. So there, go see the Lion King. But, but when you're going through this, you see the, the qualities put next to each other, just like you can for these two. If you go, go up in age, you get Malfoy and Potter. Draco Malfoy and Harry Potter. They are, uh, one is uh, sketchy, always bending or breaking the rules, always trying to game the system. Harry Potter is this noble character who's a better wizard, but Malfoy always seems to be doing something to help him find the banana peel throughout all of the different movies. These are foils. Then you have this one. This is a whole page of, of foils right here. This is a whole bag of foils. You got Johnny Lawrence on the left, Cobra Kai, who is the foil to Daniel LaRusso. Johnny is good-looking, big, strong, dating Allie when the movie opens. He's a heck of a karate kid, already a champ. Daniel LaRusso is weak, has no friends, has no uh, anything. Johnny Lawrence is wealthy. Daniel is broke, right? Uh, Johnny seems to have both parents. Daniel's got one. He's got nobody except the janitor in the apartment complex who turns out to be Mr. Miyagi, who is humble and is all about teaching karate the way it's supposed to be, life lessons and stuff. Whereas Kreese, who's also pictured there, much bigger, much stronger, former uh, military guy uh, gone wrong, who has a quote, and the motto of his dojo is, no mercy. Whereas Mr. Miyagi sees the world very differently. He's trying to teach Daniel, hey, you use it defensively. You don't go pick fights with people. You don't go do these things. Now, moving a little bit, same era, you get to this. You get uh, Rocky and Drago. Now, again, by putting Drago next to Rocky, you make Rocky, Rocky, right? He, you, you take Drago and Apollo Creed, Clever Lang out of that whole thing, and you've got basically a dumb guy from Philadelphia who boxes a little. But those guys next to him, I mean, it, it takes the whole thing to a whole other level, right? So in here, it wasn't just that. It's America and Russia in the Cold War, right? He's using steroids. He's not. Rocky loves his friend Apollo Creed, who well, I won't say it. Something happens in the movie. <laughs> and, you know, Drago, you know, if he dies, he dies, right? He doesn't care about life. He doesn't care. So foil. And then, of course, these guys. How about this? Booyah. Yes. Maverick and Iceman. And if you don't know who these guys are, get out of here. <laughs> Go down to Regal and see the movies. <laughs> All right. This is Maverick and Iceman. Um, some of you, I, I'm sorry to say, don't even know. They haven't even seen number one. You need to go see number one, right? Um, number two is just awesome, man. It's awesome. Go see that thing. Go, go to the IMAX version, too. It's incredible. But you get into this foils, right? Iceman. Maverick is dangerous. Maverick's like, I'm dangerous in the sky. He leans into it, right? But Iceman's all about, no, you do things the right way. You can be a great fighter. Power will be safe. Maverick's all about just having fun. And so Iceman's got his wing guy, and he's got Goose. And Goose is about what? Having fun and doing whatever. But they, you can see who Maverick and Goose are by looking at Iceman. All right. You can add another one to the great Hall of Fame of foils. This dude, the shrewd guy, and the biblical steward, who is not really described. Jesus is saying, and he does it by using what's called a call of a homer argument. Now that means from the less to the great, or the light to the heavy. 
You've seen him use it already. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, he'll say, hey, consider the birds and the lilies. You know, God provides for them. How much more will he provide for you? It's similar. He points to this guy and he says, hey, look, see this sketchy guy? You see the hustle in this man? You see how creative he got, how resourceful he was in managing and ripping off his worldly mastery? He goes, that's how people in the world look at stewardship. He goes, how, and basically he says, how much more should the children of light be that way? He's not saying go be sketchy. He's saying be resourceful, be smart. Like Johnny Lawrence practices karate every day. Hey, if you're going to be then an ethical, moral karate guy, then go practice too. Daniel, you see how sketchy this guy is? Look how much the people of the world sit there and do this about their money. You have a different master. And that's, I guess, where we'll start. We're managers, not masters. In the story, we're not the ones in charge. There's a master out there who's entrusted us with his stuff. And while we're going to specialize on financial stuff because that's what the parable focuses on, this can be easily be applied across every aspect of life, and we'll, we'll go there some too. But this is key. If you want to understand the Bible's view of money, it goes like this. God owns everything. He entrusts things to us that he expects us to manage well and according to his principles. That's why he trusts it to us. And what Jesus is pointing to here by, by putting us in the seat of the manager and God in the seat of the master is he's saying, hey, listen, the day is coming soon when your master is going to know that you're wasting his money and you'll give an account for what you did with what he entrusted to you. So what are you going to do now between now and the time of his arrival? How should you be managing his stuff? And so it's really a call to repentance is what this parable is. It's saying, hey, if you're out there and you're wasting God's money, I would stop. And as you do it, and as you prepare yourself to, to, to meet the, man, the master, and by the way, everybody in this building, within 100 years of now, will meet the master. Within 100 years. For me, it's a lot less. I'd be lucky if I get 50. I'd, I'd settle for 30. Give me 30 more good ones but I will meet the master and I'll give an account for what I've done. This is similar based in the aftermath of what Jesus says after he tells the parable proper. He goes on and talks some about, um, you know, kind of asks some rhetorical questions and gives some exhortation about being faithful with little and then being given more. If you're, if you're crooked and shady and small things, you're going to be crooked in big things. And if you're faithful in small things, then you'll be Faithful in bigger things. It makes sense. It's why we don't call, give 15 and a half year olds the keys to the semi and say, good luck. Like, if you want to drive a semi, you've got to, you've got to show us that you can back out of the driveway without killing somebody or knocking the mailbox over, and then we'll let you maybe get a driver's license. And if you do that and you drive for a little bit and you show us that, but if you show that you can't drive a car without getting drunk or doing whatever, then we take your keys away. Right? That's a way that we say, if you can't be trusted with the little things, you can't be trusted with the big things. All right, but it, it all begins with the idea that we're managers that are being held accountable for how we manage the stuff that God entrusts to us, okay? And the master, if we're reading Jesus properly, is on his way back 
And to those who may have been wasting his money, as the shrewd manager was in the parable, what will we do between now and the time of his arrival to get things right? Second, this is not an image for God that we we talk about a lot, but in this parable and other places, God is the great investor. We don't think of God as an investor all the time. We kind of think that God's job is to be like the bank of everything and just give things away, but he doesn't really, in fact, he how dare he expect a return on what he does? But every time that God's put in the seat of the master, he's looking for a return on his investment. We talked about the parable of the talents about a month ago. Marcus Preciado preached the sermon. And if you don't remember the story, there's a man, a master, who gives out, gives three different people different amounts of money. Five talents. A talent was a unit of money. One guy gets two. The other guy gets one. The guy that, that gets the five when the master returns, he shows up, great, how'd my investment do? He goes, great, that five is now 10. Here's your 10 talents. Master's happy and pleased. Then he goes to the guy with the two and he says, hey, how'd my investment do? And he takes the two and he says, hey, I've got two more. And the master's like, that's what I'm talking about. Then he gets to the guy with the one and he says, you know what? Here's your talent back. I didn't lose it. But he didn't get anything either. He didn't invest it. He didn't do anything. He didn't put it on deposit with the bank to get a little bit of interest, he says. And do you remember why he says that he didn't do anything with it? I hear murmurs. Somebody say it out loud. He was afraid. He was afraid. And in one version of it, he says, I knew you were a harsh man, so I was afraid. It's hard to read Luke 15 and think God's a harsh man. And that's why Luke 15, one of the many reasons Luke 15 with the prodigal son, lost coin, lost sheep matters. It's so that when we get to Luke 16 and we read this story and we're like, oh no, the master is coming back and he wants to know what I'm going to do with the life that I've been given, that we understand that the God of Luke 15 is also the God of Luke 16, and vice versa, okay? God is an investor in you. I mean, think about that. He is invested in you. He's given you a life. He's given you financial resources. He's given you physical talents, abilities, skills. Some of you have great minds. Some of you know how to do stuff with your hands. Some of you are great musicians. Some of you are, are just worker bee, workhorse types that can serve and serve and serve and serve. Some of you have these vivacious personalities that make everybody feel welcome wherever you are. You've got the gift of hospitality. You love to throw the doors of your house open and bring everybody in. Okay, those things that God has put in you. And by the way, That investment goes to the things that you normally think are just blessings. Are you a parent? You know what? God trusted you with his kids. And there will be an accounting for what we've done with his kids. See, what this parable does for me is it reminds me that God is a great investor. So whatever he's invested in me, that means that he sees something that he thinks can be used, something that can be multiplied, something that 
out of his grace, he goes, you know what, I'm going to give Tim X or Y, and I'm going to trust him with that, and if he's faithful with that, then maybe I'll give him a little bit more. If he's faithful with that, maybe I'll give him a little bit more. But he's not a bad investor, because you remember what happens at the end, go back to the parable of the talents, the guy with one, when he kind of shrugs his shoulders and says, hey, sorry, boss, I was afraid, so here's your talent back. You know what he says? Take his away and give it to the guy with the five. God doesn't do bad investments. Warren Buffett, the, the king of investing, as we call him, and our, the, the oracle of Omaha. Rule number one for investing. Anybody know what he says? Don't lose money. <laughs> Easier said than done, huh? Rule number two. Remember rule number one, he says. Don't lose money. He's kind of imitating God in a way. God's like, oh, you're not going to do anything with it. Okay. I don't want to waste my investment on you if you're not going to do anything with it. So take what they've got and give it to this guy because he knows what to do with it. Now keep in mind, there's a different economy here. There are two economies. You've got our economy here in the United States and our time and our place. He's not talking about that. He's talking about God's economy, treasures in heaven, the divine economy, and how we can leverage or squander the economy that's been entrusted to us in our time and place in such a way that it makes no impact in the economy he actually cares about. You can watch your balance sheet as a human being go down, 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 and be thoroughly pleasing God as you do it. Maybe you're giving it away. Maybe you're, 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 you're spending it on things that help advance the kingdom of God. Well, in that case, your balance sheet might be going down while this is going up. Well, in God's eyes, you're getting richer by the day. And conversely, man, you can be one rich dude and be a complete, utter failure, be completely bankrupt in the eyes of God. And that is so important for us to understand because that's the sleight of hand that Satan gives us is to think, okay, guess what? Financially, I'm doing great, which means God's happy with me. Oh, no, no, no. It might, but it might not. Your balance sheet over here is not necessarily what's being talked about here. That's why it said, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and Thieves don't break in and steal. Once there was a man who came to Jesus and he said to him, hey, Lord, uh, I am ready to follow you. He says, great, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he went away sad. Once there was a man who uh, was, you know, beholden to his stuff and he decided he would use it to build. Hey, guess what? I'm, I don't have any space anymore. He's like the first public storage guy in scripture. He takes all of this. I'm going to build a bigger barn and fill that and then build a bigger barn and then a bigger barn and a bigger barn. He says, ah, you fool. This night your life will be demanded of you. Do you see how this works, guys? Oh, no, no, no. Focus on this. Focus on making sure that you've got a lot here. And then over here, in your you know, bank of Jesus, I mean, if some of us walked in the door, they might go, I'm sorry, I didn't know you lived here. 
Uh, would you like an account at any point? <laughs> or can I check my account balance? Yeah. Uh, you actually owe. <laughs> and the loans do. What have you done? And so my, the phrase that keeps coming to my mind, sisters and brothers, and then, I mean, we're talking about money because that's the, what the parable is talking about, right? It's easy to over-spiritualize things and, and get real hazy and vague about it because uh, we don't like talking about money because we feel indicted and judged and all that. And most of us have problems with money, and so we don't like talking about that. I'd rather talk about something that I've already mastered so that I leave whatever sermon I hear feeling great about myself. But this is not about that. That's Luke 15. So if you need that, then read Luke 15. But don't stop there. Keep reading in the Luke 16 so you understand that the point of the grace of God is to help you and me grow up in the Lord and stop wasting our master's money and time and talent and waste the most valuable thing he gave us, our lives. John Piper wrote a book, I remember being at Westminster Seminary here in Escondido, browsing the bookshelf at the seminary there one day, and, and the book jacket screamed at me, don't waste your life. That was the title of the book. I, okay, that's a good idea. I'm not going to waste my life. So the question of this is, okay, what are you doing with what God has given you? With the life that God has given you, what have you done? What are you doing? Uh, God has invested in you. If you're married, he's, he's entrusted his son or daughter to you. And the goal of that marriage is not just your happiness. Happiness will come and it will go. And it will come back and then it will escape out the window again. And it will come back and it will leave. That is not the point. The point of marriage is covenant and holiness. Husbands. The scriptures say, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what it's about. It's not just about, okay, I, well, well, you know, she's kind of a nag. And blah, 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 blah. Okay, fine. Happiness is going to be here today. It's going to be gone tomorrow. So what are you doing with what God has entrusted to you? He's entrusted you with his daughter. Now what? What are you doing to multiply that, to, to, to grow that, to be faithful with that. You know, if, I, uh, if Em and I left town and we left our youngest, Nora, who's 12, with Anna and Olivia, who are 19 and 17, and we left town and we came back after a few days and we saw Nora had not bathed, she hadn't been fed, uh, she was wearing the same outfit as when we left. Um, this actually happened. No, it didn't. But it was like, <laughs> but uh, if we'd done all that, right, and we had entrusted her to them, We'd be upset because we felt like something that we cherished and we valued and that we, someone that we love, we, we trusted you with them. And those of you who've had a bad babysitter before at a, at a small level, you know what I'm talking about? That, that sense of, dude, I left my kid with you and, and you were asleep on the couch when I got home at 730 at night. What is, you had one job, well, two jobs, be awake, don't be a criminal. Those are your jobs, okay? That's babysitting 101. And here you are at 7.30, you're passed out on the couch. Meanwhile, my toddler's out in the backyard. You're furious. 
Okay, that's kind of the picture we're getting here. What are you doing with what I've entrusted to you? God's invested in you. He's invested in our church, right? Well, what are you going to do with it, New Vintage? We got picked. We're the ones here on the corner of Juniper and Grand. This time, this place. What are you going to do with it? You're going to bury it? You're going to show up 10, 15 years later, whatever, and say, Here, here's your talent back, God. I was afraid of doing anything. because, uh, Are you going to do something with it? Guys, this is the summertime, right? And, and in San Diego particularly, this is syrup time or sauce time. This is when the jacaranda trees are out. The weather is beautiful. Man, there's no better place to be than San Diego, California in the summer. And we use this often as a time to very much relax and, and, and comfort ourselves from what might be miserable the rest of the year. We use the summer or we'll take it and we will now put a massive crater in our personal finances because we're going to go take 8,000 vacations we can't afford and medicate ourselves while uh, trying to put out of our mind what goes on the rest of the year. And so one $18 margarita after another, people go through in the United States, churches shut children's ministries down in many places, and we retire for the summer like, like a school. We shut down, not us, but, but it's like your kids are out of school right now, and they're coming to church. This is the time they need the church the most, and we're going to shut down? Why would we do that? This is a chance where you don't have the same headaches that you have during school. Yes, it provides structure. And those of you with littles, I totally get that. But dude, you actually have time. You're going to have more time with your kids. Use it. Don't waste it. Use it. Here at church, right? We got college kids and high school kids that are interested in, in music and worship and stuff like that, right? Well, we're supposed to be like every other church in the country and basically try to just say, well, let's go have a bunch of fun together and, and uh, you know, because you're immature and we're immature and let's all be immature together. It's summer after all. It's San Diego. Let's all go to the beach and hang out and whatever and we'll see you in September. If you're still around, great. We'll have something for you. What a waste that would be. It's a waste. So we're going to have our fun. hope you can see that. Uh, this church has its fun for sure. But we're taking eight of our young people that want to do that and we're starting this thing called the Summer Worship Initiative where we're putting them basically into an apprenticeship program here with our band, our worship pastor and everything. It's like, hey, if you want to do this, we will spend time with you because you don't have it during the school year. Right? You're going to be spread out all over the country, but you're here now, so let's use it and let's figure out how to take this life that God's given you. You might have 60, 70 years left on this planet to do something for God that shapes your life and the hearts of the people around you. So we're going to do that as a way of saying, yes, we could easily just say, ah, that's, you know what, hey, everybody take, just, you know, everybody take a break. We're all just so exhausted from the rest of our year. If that's how we are, that means our lives are out of rhythm. And we need to figure out, okay, wh what are we living like from September to June? Maybe, maybe it's about stewardship of the whole person. Time, talent, treasure. So what are we as a church going to do? Our building. Let's use it as a tool. Let's not waste it. This is the ninth event in this building since Thursday. This service. Yeah, Amen. I mean, look, it's exhausting, man. It's crazy. It's got its downsides at times and frustrations. But let me tell you something. I'd so much rather, you know, have stuff in here where it's like the, the, the thing is open. People are in here. They're enjoying it. 
We're learning how to expose them to who we are. We're welcoming them. We're letting them see we don't all have, you know, the plague or whatever. We're, we're okay. We love the Lord. And introducing them to, to, to Jesus in our own way, or at least getting them introduced to a Christian who they don't run away scared from, right? All of that. Stewardship. 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 So what are you going to do with what God's given you? Third, this is where uh, we're around in third base here, but um, increase begins with integrity. This is what Jesus says. After the parable, Jesus asks this in Luke six, or says this in Luke 16. He says, if you're faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. If you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. If you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the two true riches of heaven? And if you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? If we want God to use us in the world, it begins by being faithful with what he's already given to us. So the question then comes back, what are we doing with our lives? You get one of them, guys. We're not cats, and we don't believe in reincarnation. So you get one. And it is to be cherished, and it is to be spent wisely. Remember, God's economy is different than ours. Faithful means, in broad terms, biblically, you're a diligent earner, Cautious debtor, wise saver, prudent consumer, and generous giver in the world. And that then is metabolized and converted into God's economy. It's leveraged for the pursuit of righteousness. My job as a parent, okay, I then understand, is not fundamentally just to, you think God gave you the kids that you've got just so you could feed them organic cereal? I mean, good, I mean, no, you, 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 that's not, it's so great, you know, they, they don't, you know, they live on soy and stuff, but, but no attention's being paid to their character. God didn't, God, the, the main task of a parent is the spiritual formation of the child, the spiritual formation of the child. And so don't just come at it and spend all this time and energy figuring out how do I get them into Harvard? How do I get them into travel, the right travel ball team? How do I get them to do this? How do I get them to be a star of this show? How do I get them to do this and ignore that? See, one economy here, this economy, the worldly economy over to God's economy on this side. So you're taking what he's entrusted to you on earth and you're storing up stuff that's heavenly on the other side. And that's what he means by being faithful with little and being faithful. In Haggai, this is, Haggai is not a book that you hear talked about much in church, and with good reason. It's kind of prickly. Um, and, and in Haggai, um, he says, yeah, he, he does not beat around the bush. He ta- he's talking to people who are griping about the fact that they don't have any money. And they're trying to rebuild the, the temple at this point. And so here's what, he, here's what he says. This is Haggai 1, verses 5 and 6. He says, this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. You planted much, but harvest little. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but you can't keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. Saying, you know, it's like, man, where'd all my money go? Most of us feel that way right about now, right? Where'd all my money go? Now, it's not necessarily because we've done anything wrong, but it can be. Sometimes it's just the economy's bad. You lost your job, whatever. But sometimes, Haggai's pointing out, they're in the economy of God, just like we can take what's here and invest it over here, God can reverse that train quickly. 
And he says, if you're willing to be faithful here, I will provide for you. But Haggai's saying the reason that you guys aren't prospering the way you could is because you're not doing with it what God said should be done. So it's like the guy with one talent. He's saying, so I'm going to take it from that person and give it to this person. If we will be faithful what God has given us, he will entrust us generally with more. Not necessarily more here, more here. 1 Corinthians 11 and 12 say to each has been given gifts of the Spirit. I love this. God, just as the Spirit chose, it might be, I've rattled off a bunch of them already. It could be fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It might be tangible things. Those of you guys who are craftsmen know how to do stuff with your hands. I wish I had that. I don't. But they're very much active in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. They're viewed as these noble guys. Awesome. God gave you that. Do something with it. Sometimes you are the person who's, who's, who's got the plague of, of making a lot of money. Do something with it. Other than be selfish. Do something with it that would make God proud of entrusting you with that. That's amazing. Uh, if, if you're a person that has a, a great home and you're hospitable and everything, man, open up the doors and let God's people and the lost come in and meet you and, and, and lead them to Jesus in your own way, the way that God leads you to. Do that, but don't waste it. God, it says, puts the body together just as he chooses, gives us gifts, and picture it like the Justice League or, or this gathering of superheroes. If you have need of a particular kind of thing, then you need a particular kind of superhero. If you need somebody, I need somebody who can swing from buildings using webs. Who should I get? Well, you don't get a Batman for that, and you don't, I don't even know what Batman does, frankly, but, but, but you got Spider-Man's the guy you want, right? Hey, I need somebody who can fly from here to there. Faster than a speeding bullet. Who should I get? There we go. I don't even know. I hear murmurs over here, but it doesn't sound like Superman, so I'm disregarding whatever you said. Superman's the man, right? If, and in the body of Christ, God's put us together the way he wants. The way he wants. So if the Justice League is here and they're going into battle... And it's time for somebody to swing from buildings with webs. And Spider-Man's like, nah, I'm good. It's like you're misunderstanding the whole reason you were given that ability. Because there was going to come a time where you were supposed to use it on behalf of others. I mean, that's so contrarian to the way we even think about superheroes that it's like, it's like, I mean, it's almost preposterous to even consider uh, I need somebody who can swim in the ocean underground really fast. Uh, and Aquaman's like, eh, you know what? My suit's still not dry yet. So I'm going to sit over here. I'm preoccupied. I'm going to go do whatever, right? Well, that, that stuff is a blasphemy to who they are. That's kind of the picture, guys. Who we are. Those gifted by God. The God, the great multiplier, by the way. The one who fed the 5,000 with a sack lunch. The one who takes the mustard seed and grows it into something that looks so unimpressive at the beginning, but then it's the largest of all the garden plants down the road, that one is returning soon. And so he wants to know, 
what we've done with what he's entrusted to us. So the call this morning, sister and brother, is really simple. Let's not waste our lives. Let's not do it. Just like the world is so good at leveraging and thinking about and obsessing about and everything and what they're going to do and and being resourceful in how they deal with money in ungodly ways, Jesus says, how much more should children of the light be thinking about how can I use this to to make God happy. So you can pray for me, and I'll pray for you, and we'll link arms together, and we'll get all of us Spider-Men and and Wonder Women and everybody else, and we'll all get together, and we're going to do what God put us on this earth to do, and that is to be a blessing here in this world. This time, we're going to gather around the Lord's table. Um, You should have got the elements when you came inside, and uh, if you didn't and you'd like some, go ahead and put your hand in the air. And, uh, and we'll, we'll bring it to you. No shame in that whatsoever. Our master is indeed returning soon. It's almost time to give an account for what we've done with the life he's given us. And what I'd like to be able to do is if God gave me a half talent, I'd love to be able to take that and walk over when it's time to give the account, drop about 50 on his desk and say, Here's a, I, I hundredfolded that thing. Bam. And hear him say, Well done. Well done, my son. May the God of Luke 15, Luke 16, and Genesis 1 through Revelation be with his people. May God be praised. As we gather around the Lord's table, we turn now to Jesus. I'll lead us in prayer, and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Father, as we take the elements, bread and the cup, body and blood of Jesus, Father, uh, we say thank you for these words. Thank you, Father, for always being one to welcome us back home. And so, Father, now we come home. To the extent that we've been wasting the life you've given us, Father, uh, we repent. And we ask that you give us a clear vision of how to use the time, talent, and treasure that you've given us for your glory. Help us, Father, to never get caught investing ourselves in the economy of the world rather than the economy of the kingdom. Help us to see, Father, what you've you've entrusted to us and see it clearly so that as we parent our kids, as we're thinking about getting married to people or whether we're married already and and wanting to know how to keep our marriages strong or how to be a viable, vibrant part of the church or or whatever it is, Father, that, that you want to lead us to, Father, we say yes to it and we just ask that you make it clear to us and that you give us the will and the state of heart to do those things, to to, to say yes and to follow. We pray this in Jesus' name.